0: We're listening to The Will and Rob Show. It's good to be back with you this week. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry of State, here with my very good friend, Robert Hassler, who is technically a Ministry Associate. We, we have the same title, but he's also the Director of Communication. So it's that wonderful, wonderful uh, act of performing and wearing different hats.
1: The same, but just a little bit better. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
0: Yeah. First among equals, as they, as they say. Uh, so hey it's good to be with you guys last week uh we're just gonna jump right in here um last week we talked about ravi zacharias and we, and we talked about these sins and somewhat of their causes and and how they came to be and today uh robert w- and i were talking and, and wanted to provide a little bit of clarification and a little bit of uh uh maybe layers and texture to what we said yesterday so Robert i just want to kick it over to you and uh tee you up to some points that you wanted to make in regard to what, what we talked about last week?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a really, in in many ways, it's a very simple issue, right? Obviously like we have an, we have an instance of really horrible sin that needs to be addressed and taken care of. And so there's really no, you know, going back and forth on that, but at the same time, it is a very um, complex issue because you're dealing with the complexity of sin, um, uh, sinners, victims, um, abuse. It's a, it's a lot, there's a lot of things going on um, and we were trying to address specifically the issue of, of celebrity culture uh, and its relation to what happened. Um, but I think that there's been so much conversation about this, this event. It, it's meant so much to so many people um, that there's been a lot of, uh, of sort of pushback on, on certain uh, responses to what happened with Robbie. Nothing from our end. Uh, I, I didn't get any pushback about what we said, um, but we did address a, a couple things that sort of were com- were said about, um, the Ravi Zacharias case. And I, I think we just wanted to spend some time to address them just because uh, we wanted to make sure that we're being very clear uh, and and uh, nuanced in, in this conversation. Uh, what, one thing we kind of addressed in the, in the last episode was that, um, you know, the people who were pushing back against those who were saying things like, hey, this could be me. Um, uh, and then you know, people sort of saw that and said, well, if that's you, then you need to get help. Like you need to call the police, blah, blah. And I think one thing, you know, we sort of talked into that and we sort of took more, I guess, on the side of the, of the folks or at least more charitable to the folks who said that could be me. And I think one thing we would want to say is that when people say, or when people see horrible cases of, of sin, right? Sexual abuse, um, uh, uh, horrible accounts of embezzlement or, or, you know, things like that. And, and pastors say, hey, that could be me. They're not saying, or at least I should say this: they're they're not usually saying, "Hey, I also have a personal, you know, propensity for that particular sin." Like I also struggle with, you know, wanting to um, uh, abuse members in my church, and it's only by the grace of God that I don't. That's not what they're saying when they say that could be me. They're making a, a metaphysical point about the. They're making a metaphysical point about sin about uh, man's propensity, mankind's propensity for sin. Um, And so we need to be really charitable in that sense, because I think if we're too quick to dismiss that, then we're going to be really uh, susceptible to more cases of sin, uh, specifically by Christian leaders. I mean, if your response is, well, that could, could be me. So, you know, therefore I should be the Christian leader. Like, I think that's that's going to be a really dangerous formula uh, going forward. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does. And I think that, as always, in the, um, in the public square, as it is online, there are people who say the same thing but mean it very differently. And there are some people who said, uh, but for the grace of God, there go I, and meant it in a very genuine biblical way understanding. And then there were those who used it to kind of elevate themselves as a way that, hey, I I have kept myself pure. Lord, thank you that I am not like that man. That is, in fact, unhealthy. But there are several biblical points, actually, when people say, but for the grace of God, there go I, that need to be understood. One of them is the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity means that there is no part of our being that remains untouched by sin from our bodies decaying as we grow older to the noetic uh, effects of sin and how we understand these epistemic uh, areas of our lives that are, are challenged and distorted by sin. That is what total depravity means. Utter depravity would mean that everyone's a serial killer, basically everyone's a serial rapist. That is not a biblical doctrine. That is the difference between utter depravity and total depravity. And so we stick with total depravity. And I think in the, in the charitable good reads of people, when they say that phrase, that's what they mean. Another is John Owen's great quote. um, The seed of every sin is in my heart. And uh, and that needs to be remembered that um, not everyone uh, is going to act like Ravi Zacharias, of of course, but to recognize that that could happen does need to be, does need to be maintained and guarded against.
1: No, for sure. Like we need to understand the parasitic nature of sin, right? So, um, it's not that we're, we all struggle with all the same sins equally all the time, right? That's obviously not what's going on. Um, but that, contained within our, our fallenness within our total depravity. What you said lies the seed to all of these things, right? These things can germinate and grow if we allow them to, especially and without the grace of God. So um, uh, if you are a uh, sort of a, 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 ster- a serial liar, right? For example, like if you lie about little things, right? This is something we all know. We teach our kids this, right? If you lie about little things, you're going to be more and more open to lying about big things. Right. And then eventually, you know, the worst of that living actually by a lie, right? Like there are, um, those things grow. that It doesn't start out at the maximum, but it grows into that. And I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, and yeah, I, and I think another thing I would want to say about this whole situation, um, is that folks who are, uh, Of the same mindset that you just said between utter depravity and total depravity, like folks who are in the total depravity camp, the the folks who recognize man's propensity for sin need to be the most open and willing to like strict policies and procedures for limiting sin in our leaders, right? Does that make sense? So like, you know, if you are of the camp of said, hey, that could be me, then you need to be the most open. Uh, in your role as a leader in your church or your ministry or whatever, um, in getting feedback, uh, from, uh, female leaders, uh, women leaders in your ministry, right? If, if they sense a red flag, you should listen to them, right? That's, that's part of what, what the, the understanding of knowing that, um, or, uh, is is part of knowing that total depravity is real and that's a real doctrine. You need to be aware and open to those things. Um, w- one of the things that I think is true that we said last week, which is that a big reason of, of what happened, we think, uh, was the, the way that he was enabled and sort of allowed to do things because people just assumed he was a great Christian leader. This could never happen to him. Um, and if, if we understand the doctrine total depravity, we just can't accept that. That, that, just, that cannot be allowed to pass.
0: Something that you, you had mentioned and um, what you're saying is there is a danger in managing sin. What exactly are you meaning when you say that?
1: Yeah. What I mean is that, that sin is not like a a thing that we can, you know, create a focus group and come up with a 10 point plan to manage. Like it's sin is not something that we can invoke sort of crisis management uh, uh, protocols onto. It has to be put to death, right? That that's the only thing that you can do with it. Um, And uh, there's a difference between managing sin, like after it's manifested and it's happening. And uh, setting up parameters to, to resist temptation um, and to avoid sin. Um, and so when uh, you're leading a Christian organization, you should have st- structures and policies in order to resist temptation and in, to avoid sin. But then when sin happens, you have to put it to death, right? You can't manage it. And that's why I think what's so disturbing about so much, so much of the, the report and the stories that came out about it was that it felt like sort of the leadership over at RZIM was trying to manage the situation. They weren't trying to put to death what was going on, right? And look how much worse it is now, right? Like he was probably, you know, enabled and had more victims because of, I think, a lot of it. So we need to be, we need to be really mindful of the power of sin, um, one thing that uh, uh, we learn about in our, my class on sin is that uh, the, the cost of the solution reveals the depth of the plight, right? So if, if in order to, to combat sin, it required God himself to come in human form and be put to death on a cross to get rid of it, then we need to be really sober and sober minded about the power of sin. Um, and to, for, to take to Twitter and say, well, that would never be me. And if that is going to be you, then you need to get help that that's a red flag for me
0: that's so good it um reminds me of the part in the great divorce where there's the man with the lizard and the angel says can i kill it and it's a little lizard but the fact is that even that little thing can't stay and it has to be killed and to bring back owen he wrote that wonderful book uh the mortification of sin which is honestly like a it's a pretty strong title. It's an intense title, but it is a rich, beautiful book. And I would recommend it to any Christian who hasn't read it, but it is definitely worth diving into and understanding this sense in which sin is, it's, it's, it spreads like a virus. I mean, it has a life of its own and it is not content with just a little bit. It it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. This one of Owen's points is that sin wants everything. Uh, Why? Because God wants everything. And so it is God's enemy seeking to undo what he is doing. And we have to be vigilant um, in that. And to your point also, this isn't something we fight on our own. This isn't something where I don't weave the garments of my righteousness. I don't work uh, in order to have clothes to put on. What I do is I receive the garments Christ has given me and I put on those garments of righteousness in order to be clothed in Him. And there's, of course, the cultivation of virtues. Not to leave those out. I'm working through a Benjamin Franklin biography, so I don't want to take his his specter off here by not mentioning the importance of virtues in the Christian life. But uh, that, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad we're bringing this up, and I'm glad we're offering these kind of clarifications here. And I think they're important for us to remember as believers. And with that, um, with someone like Ravi Zacharias and these sins, I mean, maybe a thought experiment of were he still alive? What would be the proper Christian response from the church to him? Um, there's two sides, there's grace and mercy that we hold to, and we live under the authorities of this world and the courts of the church. So, uh, the courts of the church would, uh, you know, in Presbyterian, we would have the session and the Presbyterian, the GA, depending on all what was needed. They would absolutely need to exact discipline on him, not punishment. Of course, there's a difference between disciplining and punishing. Um, Christ has taken our punishment, but, but discipline still exists. There would be discipline that would need to be brought on Ravi. In addition to that, the authorities, the governmental authorities would need to be brought in and given uh, control over this situation And there's also grace and mercy, which is very uncomfortable because it, it doesn't, it prevents us from being able to exact vengeance. And I was just curious, Robert, what you thought, how you would see this, this connection between this importance of justice from the world in, in government authorities, policing and, uh, discipline within the courts of the church and grace and mercy as well.
1: Um, my church this week just addressed, you know, um turning the other cheek uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh part of that message was uh, uh that doesn't that's not a license to be a doormat, uh essentially, that you can't just be that, that justice and mercy have to exist coequally. Um and in many ways that's a paradox for us. It's very, very hard to wrap our head around justice and mercy at the same time. Um in many ways, I think we also need to see that justice can be a mercy and mercy can be justice, right? Um, uh, that's another element of this. And so, like, when I see what happens, absolutely, like, to do justly and love mercy, we mean absolutely, like, that, that person needs to be disciplined by the church and the, the authorities absolutely need to, to conduct justice on him. Um, and in this case, if you were to be alive would obviously mean. Um, probably spending quite a bit of time in prison. I mean, it's just obvious. Like that's, that's what would happen. Um, and as Christians, we should want the world to do justice, right? Like that's, that's what we want. Um, and at, this, at the same time, um, we do have this other commandment to love mercy. Um, and so the question then really becomes, what does is, what is mercy and uh, love look like um, in this context? I think the first and for- foremost thing is to show mercy and to love the victims, right? Obviously that needs to be a priority of the church. Um, and so you would want to, you would want to emphasize that. And then the, then the really tough question, right. Is how do you show mercy or maybe the, actually, before we get to that, maybe the middle part is how do we uh, uh, show mercy to the people on the board uh, who maybe enabled this behavior? Well, what does that look like? Um, that's a tough question. And then obviously the hardest question is how do we show mercy to the actual abuser, um, which is not, limited to this particular case, right? Many congregations over the years have had to learn how to show mercy um, to leaders who have uh, committed horrible sins, uh, particularly against them and their members. Um, I think one thing it's important to say is that um, to do mercy does not necessarily mean that the relationship or the circumstances go back to the way they were before, right? So like if somebody is an abuser in your church Uh, to show mercy on them does not, and to forgive them does not necessarily mean like, okay, they're back reinstated to their position that they were before. Obviously that's not true. Um, I I think in this particular case to love mercy in this situation is to just, is to avoid vengeance, right? It's to, it's to step away and say, um, you know, this happens a lot when um, on on Twitter, when people die, Um, I saw this, this happen with Rush Limbaugh this, this last week, you know, people basically say, well, good riddance, or like, I wish that that had happened earlier or something like that. We need to be like, as Christians, we need to be really careful of those sort of sentiments and attitudes, um, even with our enemies. Um, in this case, Robbie obviously would be an enemy in, in many respects uh, to love and and the, the good, true, and the beautiful. And so um, to not want vengeance on him is probably... The best way to, to love mercy in this situation,
0: I think that's good. I really appreciate you bringing up these points of working, um, kind of kind of doing triage here. You know, first importance the victims board, and then Ravi himself. I think that's that's really good. We we look at where does help need to be administered the most right now, and we put our resources there and um, as best we can. Of course, the other is. Uh, I think of uh, C.S. Lewis's character and that hideous strength. Um, I was advised once by a seminary professor to be careful of citing C.S. Lewis too much in a sermon. Of course, this is not a sermon, but I I wonder if he would, Dr. Uh, Wingard, if he would approve (laughs) of this right here. But uh, one of the characters, her name is Grace Ironwood. And I love that description. Grace is, you know, wood is softer and it's more, you can, it's, it's more bendable, flexible. Iron is strong and firm. And grace is like that. Grace is, um, it welcomes us, but it is not meant to just be a carte blanche free ride. Grace and mercy are meant to lead us to repentance. When we are shown grace, when we are, when we receive mercy What God desires in that is for us to turn from our sin and to walk more closely with him um, and, and leave and put to death those sins that were behind. And I'll say, unless as Christians, when we're out in the world and we're looking at areas where sin is present and we offer grace and mercy without also a call and an expressed desire for repentance, it's it's hard to see how we don't just appear at the very least like moral relativists. It, it would seem that if we're not also saying, Hey, God forgives you without also the call of God is in his son, like you said, a great cost for these sins that have been committed. Then we seem to be kind of saying like, Hey, it's no big deal. No, it, it's a very big deal. My sin is a very big deal. It is a huge cosmic problem. And so these things need to be paired together, uh, and and it it is a difficult thing. We don't live in a culture that desires repentance very much. Uh, it is not. It is. It sounds very puritanical to issue a call for repentance, unless of course the cultural tastemakers have predecided that that repentance is is needed. Um, but as Christians, we do both, and we do both of those out of a love for our neighbors whether they be believers or not
1: yeah 100 it, it 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 strikes me is that uh, um we're so persuaded by the culture who wants either one thing or the other they either want justice or they want mercy um and they don't want both and i i often think about those those um you know, those testimonies or those videos that will go viral of, you know, people in the courtroom. And it's usually like the son or daughter um, testifying, you know, to, uh, at the courtroom about, you know, the, the maybe the person uh, killed one of their parents in a drunk driving um, case or something like that. And, you know, the stories are, you know, you usually have the, the, the son or the daughter and basically says like, look, like you did this horrible thing, but I forgive you. And, you know, I love you. I remember there was one there was a case where, you know, they actually hugged um, in the middle of the courtroom. Now, the situation would instantly become bad if one of two things happened, right? Like if after that happened, the judge said, okay, we're going to, you know, you've forgiven them. We're going to let this guy go. Be like, okay, hold on. Something's wrong. That isn't, that, that's not right. Um, and then, you know, it also grieves and, and, and pains us when, You know, somebody stands up and says, I will never, you know, I will never forgive you. I hope nobody ever forgives you. And I hope you, you know, you die alone and and sad for what you did. It's like even that, that, that rubs against us in a certain way, right? Like that extreme um, of, of so anti-mercy, it, it, it rubs, uh, it, it grains against us as well. And so we're made to be, you know, we're beings that are made to, to love justice, you know, to do justice and love mercy. Like that has to exist at the same time. And it's one of those paradoxes that we just have to, we have to live in is as, as uncomfortable as it can be.
0: Yeah. And in order to, uh, to stick with this, this concept of love and mercy of the good, the true, and the beautiful that you mentioned, there was a Gallup poll. Um, and this this is, this is connected to sexual sin. So we're tying this in here in in our culture at large, because um, these instances of sexual deviancy are not disconnected at all. Recently, a Gallup poll came out, and it reported that in gener- Generation Z, Gen Z, that one in six individuals are professed LGBT. Um, that number, that's 14% of Generation Z. That number consists of 12% that identify as bisexual, 2% uh, as as strictly lesbian, transgender, or gay. Um, There are probably a host of things that we could look at to help us understand how exactly we got here. But when I read that article, I was, first of all, incredibly sad and heavy hearted and nearly devastated. Um, Because if, if it's true as scripture, which it is true, as scripture says that, um, our sexual identity is something that has been given to us by God. That Scripture dictates and describes how those how our sexuality is to be used and lived out. Then these people who are living ways that are contrary to God's word are ultimately doing something our, our neighbors doing something that is that is devastating and incredibly hurtful. And so, initially, I was very sad because this is going to have major major consequences on these people especially as they are very young these 18 to 23 year olds there's a lot that's happening especially as adolescence is delayed and so um they're not as mature even as it would have been if an 18 23 year old back in the boomer generation had had the same statistic come out the other was quite honestly a, a fair amount of anger um at the church at least when i look at in urban centers and i look at this and i think my goodness The church has not churches have not done a very good job of discussing this issue of LGBT and what it means and what it signifies. I think the best that we're given, the most that we're told from more of the urban centers is that um, we need to love and be kind and welcoming to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Yes, duh, absolutely of course we should. No one's arguing that. What we need and what we're looking for is how do we as Christians faithfully combat this cultural zeitgeist moment that is happening where young people are being told that if they feel a certain way that that makes it true, that they should explore and and do whatever they want. This article talks about the facts the the effects of the pandemic actually on this where Certain social structures that would be there to keep people in check and guide people have been removed. And instead, they're being shaped more and more than they were before March of 2020 by TikTok and Instagram that are showing them how how they ought to behave. And so, I I don't know, Robert, I'm interested on your thoughts on this. This is a delicate situation. This is a tough one because on the one hand, I want to be sensitive to people who are struggling with this. Yes, but I also want to be strong and firm about why this is an incredibly serious and like I said, devastating study um, that we have to think very, very seriously on how to respond to and what's going on.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a really good point. I mean, when I first saw the number, I just, I didn't believe it. I I thought it would have been a typo like one in six is just so high. I mean, that is just an incredible number, Um, which is, Once you realize it's what it's not a typo, it's quite scary and um, disheartening. Um, Maybe, uh, maybe in order to sort of frame the conversation, I might uh, put it this way: let's let's pick a sin um, that, um, or uh, let's just say that let's pick uh, something that you know people exhibit uh, in their individual lives, but that is a manifestation of the culture that they live in. That's not a that's not as a hot, hot. button issue like sexuality let's say consumerism okay let's say you have a hard or let's say materialist uh, you have a hardcore materialist uh in your congregation right who puts his value in in the things that he owns um he's always talking about how uh, fancy his sports car is how you know he want, he keeps he doesn't feel comfortable in his you know, already extravagant home, but he, he's got to buy a new one. He's always talking about the stuff he's buying and showing off what he's buying, blah, blah, blah. Let's just, let's say you have somebody like that. Um, okay. So obviously the way that you minister to that person who's a materialist is different than your prophetic witness to materialist culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and those things are going to look differently. And those are actually different conversations. And so I think, one thing that gets muddied in, in this conversation is we say, okay, the way that we treat uh, LGBTQ individuals is going to be the same. Like our strategy for witnessing to LGBTQ individuals is going to be different than the way that we prophetically witness to uh, the sort of the LGBTQ culture. And I I think we have to think about those things differently. All right. I should say this. Um, One thing that I hear often is that people who struggle with, uh, same sex attraction in the church, uh, say that the church doesn't do enough to talk about this issue. Um, and that's why it's really bad on this issue. Well, I, I, I would say, yeah, that's true. Like another reason why things like this are happening, like this poll is that the church isn't very good at talking about sex. Um, and so, uh, actually for the sake of both, you know, sides, right. For the sake of loving and caring for our brothers and sisters who, who, uh, wrestle with SSA. Um, uh, and then being able to combat the culture that is so uh, our, ch- especially our children are so inundated in uh, either online or in their schools. Like we have to be able to, to speak about both those things uh, in our churches. And so the question is, well, what, what does that look like? Um, which I think is, is kind of the second thing that we need to think. Cause I think the first thing that needs to be addressed is that this is a, this is a conversation worth having, um, in many respects, you know, uh, one thing that you brought up that, you know, I'd I'd be interested in you to talk more about is that, you know, it doesn't really fit our brand anymore. Right. The sort of big evangelicalism, like speaking about LGBTQ issues, isn't really our brand anymore. Like we don't really, that sounds, that's kind of the old fuddy duddy way of doing church. Like we're more interested in these other topics. And so we don't really, uh, I don't think feel real urgency, to discuss them. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? I mean, what what do you think about that?
0: I think the church needs to be very wary when it chooses. This is going to be our one topic that we're going to really focus on right now. I think about actually in the 1950s, when the church, there were two big issues going on for the church at that time. One was prayer in schools. The other was a civil right. Now the church spent a ton of energy on prayer in schools. I mean, it, it was, a, it was a massive debate. It was a Supreme Court case. I mean, this was a big, big deal. It did not expend nearly the same amount of resources on unifying the church. And, 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 and instead, it by default and by omission and commission, the church remained tragically more divided. That's a really good lesson for us today to look at. We are spending a ton of our resources on one particular issue, and we're not willing to focus on the other. Why? Because we're looking to maintain a certain amount of cultural cachet with people. We're trying to make sure that we stay relevant, that we stay cool, that our brand is this, and that the church knows, hey, we're fighting this. But if we bring up these other things, like LGBTQ, we're going to be ostracized. Well, again, it is delicate, and and fire and brimstone is not the way to go about this. It is not it is not right to go about it in the sense of the way that the church handled it in the eighties again, which is another lesson with the AIDS pandemic that happened. That was not good either. There is a loving, but a, an ironwood way to go about the issues that are facing the church right now with LGBTQ. And if we want to love the culture, we need to be talking about this because the culture is being deeply, deeply affected by it. And, and, and so that that's kind of where I'm thinking about this is churches need to be wary about what's our brand. Our brand is Jesus, which he talked about everything. Our brand is the gospel, which is the forgiveness of all of man's sins and the reconciliation one day of all things back to God.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And that kind of goes back to something I said earlier, which was, you know, we don't all struggle with the same exact things all the time in all the same places, right? Like things are going to be different. Um, You know, one thing I think is is interesting is that um, you, you could almost say that uh, this is just speculation, but you could almost say that, you know, in different areas of this country, which obviously this, this nation is huge and has is not one single cohesive identity. It's, it's multiple. Um, you know, you've got churches that are probably in the South that probably don't deal as much in sort of um, this issue. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Texas. And there was still a very um, uh, uh, cultural conservatism, I guess is what you could say about issues of sexuality. Um, that was sort of just default that, 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 wasn't just the church, but that was sort of the, the culture in general. Uh, and then I think in the East coast, that's probably a little bit different. Um, you could also say the same thing about issues of racial reconciliation, right? Like, you know, that's, that's probably a, a, an issue of, of regional differences as well in, in some degree. Um uh, and so one thing that I, I might say about all of this is that the church needs to be equipped to handle this issue in a bunch of different contexts. But I think that the, the way that it can be the most, I hate to use this word, but the way that it can be the most efficient um, is really spending the time and the resources uh, discipling and equipping uh, the people on the front line, which are parents. Um, I think ultimately that this is pr- is probably an issue of the home um, in in many ways. And you're not necessarily preaching from the pulpit or doing studies in order to combat LGBTQ sort of identity culture in your youth group, but maybe you're equipping parents to how to talk about these issues, the ways that these things are. Um, uh, this message is being brought, uh, to their children. I mean, like, I bet if you were to ask the parents of this, of gener- generation Z, they probably don't know anything about what's their, what their kids are watching on TikTok, on YouTube. Um, uh, uh they, they maybe have a general sense of when they watch commercials or when they understand the television shows and, and stuff like that. But like there's something else going on that I think parents need to be equipped to, to manage. And, and a lot of that is, is, how do I love my child through something like this? How, do, how what, what are the words to say? Um, how do I show unconditional love? Um, where do I need to draw lines? Where, where, you know, things like that. This is ultimately um, a pro, uh, an issue that I think needs to be um, dealt with uh, first and foremost in the home. Um, and that's really where the church's energy could be best spent. I mean, what do you think about that?
0: I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 I've I I'm been thinking uh, recently about uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord, the, the greatest commandment that Jesus identifies, right? Love the Lord God through your heart, so my strength, love your neighbor yourself. Those were intended to be taught. Where? From a parent to their child. Uh, and I think in addition to that, as we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So who are my mother and brothers and sisters? It is my father's will. Additionally, when we look at discipleship and where we can do the most good, where we can enact first and foremost, these commands and teach them to each other. It is in intimate, small contexts. It is, it is in places where we know each other and we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So absolutely. I agree with you. And there are of course, issues where people are called to public witness. That's absolutely there as well. We have Mars Hill with, with Paul and Acts, So we can, we, that's not excluding it, but it's saying, we're, we're wondering, what can we do? How can we help? Where can we be salt and light? We can acknowledge, in fact, that God uh, says, well, what, what is around you? Vaclav Havel, right? Identity is, a, is, is shaped by our responsibilities. So our responsibilities as friends, as neighbors, as parents, as children, uh, and, and what are, who are we and what are our responsibilities in light of those things, I think, is something that we can really remember. Um, and, and I totally agree with you on that. Another interesting thing about this study that I think would be helpful to consider is um, well, two things. One, that out of the 14% that identify as LGBT, LGBT um, uh, 12% identified as bi, bisexual. Only 2% identify as transgender, gay, or lesbian strictly. Now, I think we understand what young people are going through, what we went through. That number makes a lot more sense, in fact. Um, these people are not actually willing to go all the way towards uh, gay or lesbian. Now, in addition to that is this, There, this this author points out that there is a new shift away from and, and the 2000s, the whole line of uh, born this way, that actually is a stigma that people are either born gay or they're born straight. Now, the narrative is people choose whatever they feel, what they really want. It is which is this ever shifting narrative and explanation. It is incredibly fluid, which again is part of the need for vigilance for paying attention to this. Because if we start using the born this way actually can be offensive now. Right. Yeah. What a change. I mean, that was like the whole argument um, for a long time. And now you use that and people won't even listen. And which is kind of beside the point, but the, the bigger point is the the shift in this narrative in order for, I, I'm not talking about political agenda. I'm talking about a sin agenda here to take root and to do its work um, in order to constantly be shifting this. And I thought about this quote by David Wells, we are being liberated from everything but ourselves we, and this ability to choose, we're, we're being, we're, that's why that old fashioned line of born this way is so passe. It's because we're liberated from even our biology and our genetic makeup. We're now being free to this, this strange concepts of feeling and, and some, some, some idea of ourselves.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, <laughs> it, it, in many ways, it's like, I think I'm being gaslighted. Like, like I remember uh, uh, when Lady Gaga's hit came out, and it was sort of the anthem of the time, and that was the that was the language. That was how you spoke of these things. And then now, I think to sort of to the to to put on the sort of the the hat and and try to understand, you know, what's the, what the other side's saying. It it'd be, it'd something probably be along the lines of like all humans are born. Um, essentially with their sexuality, essentially a blank slate. And it's up to them to sort of choose what that's like. Now that's being really sort of charitable and sort of that logical reasoning. But I think that that's essentially what the position is, but that makes the the role of, of Orthodox Christians even harder because now you're, you're now having to sort of, you're starting to start find a fight on two fronts, right? So now you've, you've got to, now you've got to establish that, um, Uh, no, not humans are not actually born with a blank slate in sexuality that they're born with a certain standard and, and, and code that they're to to adhere to. Um, And so that's going to be infinitely harder. um, I think going forward uh, in this generation, I think also not to get too into this, because I think this is somewhat tangential, but I think related um, is the, the, the story of, or I guess the, the issue of gender um, norms and, and expectations um when you said when you brought that point up about um uh, uh folks identifying as, as bisexual um some of the examples you know are are things that um i would say are more issues of well what are gender expectations and you know what uh, what are you expected to sort of think and feel um as a male or female and this is again i think a testimony to why parenting is so important Um, because our, if you just go to our culture for like sort of male, female expectations uh, you're going to hear a lot of different things all across the spectrum, right to left. Right. So like I grew up in Texas, there was a very clear understanding of what a male was. And to be completely honest, like my experience did not line up with that very well. Okay. But I never, by the grace of God, wrestled with some of these issues because I had a very strong male role model in my life being my father. Um, And uh, because he taught me what, what biblical manhood was uh, and and exhibited that in his life, I was very, I was led very well in that, in that area and did not feel the same sort of tensions um, that I got from the culture, both on the right and the left, right? Like A lot of kids growing up in Texas would probably have been, especially boys, would probably have been ashamed to admit by their 18th birthday that they had never even touched a firearm. I felt no such embarrassment about that because that was never part of my calculus of what it meant to be a male uh, and to be a man. And so, you know, that's another thing that's going on here in terms of uh, 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 this issue of sexuality and, and gender identity and expression. Will is condescendingly shaking his head at me that I've never fired a gun being from Texas, but that's okay. I can live with it.
0: If you were from Vermont, (laughs) I I would understand it is, it is almost impossible for me to really get my head around the fact that you've never even done a skeet shoot, that you've never done five stand. Never, never Never even even touched, never even
1: touched a gun. It's not that if I've held it and not shot it, I've never even touched it
0: we're going to remedy this. We're going to have <laughs>
1: there to. you go, Will. There you go. Trying to shame me for my, my, uh, my gender expression.
0: I just think there's a lot of fun that you're missing out on.
1: That's fair. That's okay. fair. And not in a, not in an
0: aggressive, violent sort of way. All right, let's keep that clear. Um, I w I want to close us here with, um, maybe a word of hope. Um, but, but Maybe something a little heavier first uh, in 1867, Matthew Arnold, the English poet um, wrote about the melancholy, long withdrawing roar of the sea of faith. And he couldn't get his head around a, a, a faith and like a creedal belief in God, but he understood its importance and it made him sad that it was disappearing. And instead, what he supposed was, is like a faith in each other and a faith in humanity. And there's something that's kind of romantic about that. It sounds nice, but it's not enough. And we have been trying that experiment of we have, we have put the second commandment first, basically, and we have completely ignored the first commandment again, not to be simplistic about this, but um, what is essential for us is to remember uh, our place before God first and uh, the West is in a retreat, I think, a lot of ways because of this just belief in humanity, and it's an experiment that is not going well. Um, but as Robert was saying, just as an encouragement, there are these elements of faith where we we seek to be faithful to where God has called us and to be obedient to him and live out his love for our, sel- for our neighbors and ourselves uh, and even our enemies. And I think that is... That is a huge answer to this, and we, we could get in, I think, at another point into more talk about the gender identity and gender norms things. Um, because it is a huge topic, but this Gallup poll I just saw it today, and I think it's important to discuss. And so, Robert, do you have any final thoughts?
1: No, I'm glad you brought it up, and I, I think this is definitely going to be um, something that the, the church is going to have to address and, and uh, wrestle with uh, going forward. I mean, it. it, it Gen Z is not going anywhere, right? That's that's the generation that we've been called to minister to and and to train up and disciple. Um, Many of us are going to be on ministering on college campuses, and that's going to provide very unique circumstances and and difficulties to have to wrestle through. Uh, Many of us are going to be, you know, leaders in our churches, our local churches. Um, And, you know, having uh, uh, folks who have gone through this experience, you know, witnessing to them, trying to, you know, bring them into the fold, it's going to be, it's going to be unique and, and tough. And um, I'm glad that you did end with, with a note of hope because um, I take a lot of, when I see things like this, as somebody who's in ministry, it's really quick to like be depressed. Like I th- sort of the most cynical and, and depressed and, and uh, um, jaded version of me reads a headline that, and I go, well, there goes the church. Like, if, if one in six are already basically built out, like you can't support a church like that, that, that can't work blah, blah blah. like that's, I start running that gambit. Right. But then I have to, I have to pause and I have to remember that I actually don't do anything. The Lord is always calling his, his people back to himself. It's, it's a work of the Holy spirit. Um, I I'm just tasked to be faithful and, and to, to, to open my hands and be a tool, uh, in the hands of God. And so, um, in, in many ways, I'm just kind of sitting here going, like kind of, you know, getting ready and going, okay, let's do this.
0: Amen. To end, remember the words that Jesus told to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, there is, there is a steadfast hope that we have. And, uh, which means that we're on the march as is on the move. And so yes. thanks you all so much for tuning in and being with us. As always, it's great to have you. You can follow Robert at Artie Hass, or you can follow me at Stockdale Will. I'm kind of taking a Twitter break right now, so. Uh, just Anyways, uh, we'll see you next week.